Occasionally throughout the book of Acts, Luke zooms out for Theophilus. He zooms out to give a kind of progress report of the church, to show us what the church is doing, the healthy marks of a church. And last week we saw that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And that you have to continue to go back to the apostles' teaching again and again and again. Or you find that you've created a Jesus. You've created a Jesus that's just a mold of your own values. And that kind of Jesus can't change you because he can't challenge you. He's just you. And so this week we'll see two other marks of the church. And so if you have your Bibles, let's grab them. We're in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to read uh, Acts 2, beginning verse 40, and we'll go down through verse 47. Kay's going to read for us. Let's stand together as she reads God's word. And now with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and the belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may take a seat. Tracy and Landy Barnes had waited 15 years for this moment. They boarded a plane in Denver, Colorado to go to Ridnon, Italy to compete in a sport they had given half their life to, the biathlon, this grueling sport of cross-country skiing combined with rifle marksmanship. They get to Italy, they go through the first several races together, they're doing great, and then the night before the final key races, Laney gets ill, and Tracy goes and competes and finishes well and makes the cut. Laney is devastated, because for 15 years they'd worked toward this. They competed in 2006 to come home without a medal, and this was the year at age 31 that they were going to do it together. Gold and silver, they had it all planned out. You see, Laney and Tracy, you may know, are identical twins, and they had given their lives to this sport. And it didn't take long for Tracy to make up her mind when she saw that her sister didn't make the team, and this is what she had to say. When I saw Laney giving everything while feeling at death's door, and when I could see how disappointed she was when she realized the dream was up for her, it made my decision easy. You see, Tracy, her sister, her identical twin sister, gave up her spot on the U.S. biathlon team so that the first alternate 
her identical twin, might take her place. She gave up her own dream so that her identical twin sister might be able to live out hers in Sochi. And the world, when they heard of the story, were shocked by this kind of sportsmanship, that it would go on today, that Guinness, of all companies, captured this in a commercial. Let's watch. choices we make reveal the true nature of our character. When God created the world, friends, he created it beautiful and perfect and good. It was awesome in every definition of the word. But man, through his own willful decision, became too ill to compete, too ill by sin and by death. And so it was always winter, as C.S. Lewis says, but never Christmas across the world and in our hearts. And God would have been justified to let the world go its own direction. We made the decision. But God didn't let it go to its own demise. That he, at the appointed time, at just the right time, he sent a blowtorch to thaw out the chilly winter of the world and of our hearts. He sent a rescuer for us. He sent his only son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us under the law out from it so that we might be able to say that we are sons of God. And not only that, but he put the Holy Spirit in our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Just like Lainey Barnes, friends, you and I were given a second chance. We were given the opportunity to have a redo, to be put on the leading edge. And what you see in the book of Acts is God's opportunity for us to be set on the leading edge, to be his new humanity, his new covenant people, because you see that God's leading edge of his renewal campaign happens by the Holy Spirit through his church. This morning, we see the marks of the healthy church. What, is it, what does the new humanity look like when it's on the leading edge? What are the characteristics of it? And the big idea of the passage is this. The church of Jesus Christ is his love manifest in the world. And the Holy Spirit comes not only to give us that love, but to make us lovely as well. You got it? Listen, Peter just preached this sermon that Kay read, and he said, to be saved from this perverse generation. Tes geneos, tes skolios in Greek. 
Peter is saying, be saved from this generation that is morally and ethically and spiritually full of scoliosis. The NIV, some of your other translations may read the crooked and twisted generation. It's that Greek word, it comes from scolios, scoliosis. It's twisted. It's bound up within itself. You don't find this phrase anywhere else in the New Testament, but every good Jew, everybody listening to Peter preach this sermon would have known where this passage also showed up, where this phrase showed up. And it was back in the Old Testament. It was the phrase that God used about Israel when they're wandering through the desert. It was a crooked and twisted generation who, though they were saved, right? You remember the story in Exodus 12, 13, and 14. Israel was brought out of captivity. They were freed from Pharaoh's hand. But then they're set free in the desert to wander around. And they begin to complain and moan, and they forgot to remember God's gracious deliverance of his people. Peter calls us to be freed from the twisted generation in which we are. And how does he do that? He says that being freed comes through the presence of the Holy Spirit. That when God gave his Holy Spirit, he didn't just give it to individual atomized people so that they can just live their lives individually. He called us together to be the leading edge of his renewal campaign, to be on the team, to not only show the beauty of his love, but to make us lovely as well through the church. Listen, God not only intends to make us a new creation in the church, he intends for us to be an entirely new generation, an entirely new humanity. That's his point in forming the church and giving the Holy Spirit, not to prophets, priests, and kings, as in the Old Testament, but to every believer. And this new generation, this new humanity, this new creation has already begun with the giving of the Spirit. And he gives the Holy Spirit to his church to make us beautiful. Last week we saw that there was the first mark of what it means to be a healthy church, and that is that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. If you have your sermon outline, take it. Look at the back of your bulletin this morning. We saw last week, what's the mark of a healthy church? The mark of the healthy church was that, first of all, they were devoted to learning. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. If you're going to be on the leading edge of Christ's renewal campaign, you have to be devoted, it says, to the apostles' teaching. I was on a flight last weekend with a seminary student um, in the area, and I was asking him. Um, we just happened to sit next to each other, and I said, so tell me some of the things that you're learning. And he said, learning you know, I'm really not, I'm, I really don't care that much about being a student. I just want to feel the Holy Spirit. Like, I really am growing. Like, I want to be intimate with Jesus and really want to be grown in the Holy Spirit. And he said, he started giving me trends of the church and different leadership techniques. But told me really, he told me nothing of Scripture, nothing of what God's doing in helping reveal the idols of his own heart. And so we, as we had this conversation together, you know, he basically said, well, what do you think about that? And um, I said, I think you're going to exhaust yourself. And I think you're going to exhaust your people. Because part of being a believer is that you have to root yourself in the apostles' doctrine. Isn't it amazing that after John dies, the last of the apostles that we know of, the last of the apostles, we think John died at the end of the first century. It's amazing that the apostles, right, who have constituted God's um, teachings for the church, 
It's amazing that the church, after the apostles died, didn't set up a study committee and say, I wonder what God thinks about divorce. I wonder, I wonder what he thinks about um, whether we should pay taxes to Caesar. I wonder what he thinks about how to raise our children. No. As Jude says, the church went back to the apostles' teaching. Do you want to know what God thinks of divorce? You go back to the apostles' teaching. Do you want to know what God thinks of idolatry? You go back to the apostles' teaching. Jude says that. That here is the apostles' teaching, once for all delivered to the saints. We know in Romans 12, too, you know the verse that says, you know, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you know that verse? The word for mind is the word noose. And my old professor um, at Dallas Seminary, Howard Hendricks, used to say, you have to fill your noose with biblical truths. (laughs) And N.T. Wright says that where no attention is given to teaching and to consistent lifelong Christian learning, people quickly revert to the worldview of the surrounding culture. Listen, God has given us a story. We love stories. We tell them all the time. You know the stories of families? We tell the story of our family all the time. Every Thanksgiving you hear the story. Oh, Uncle Jimmy went out and he did this. And the the ancestor that you've got that boarded a boat in Sweden and he, you know, went through this malaria-infested ship for a month to get to the New World and showed up with nothing in the New World but a tattered, the tattered clothes on his back and a Bible that was well-read, Right? That's a story of my great-great-great-great-grandfather, by the way. We all have these stories. Go to Billford's and just ask him to tell stories about what they've done at the, at the, they take this Chevy S10 and jump over dirt and you drive it through the ponds and you, you shoot guns and miss each other, hopefully. And I mean, we tell stories all the time. Listen, the Bible is a story. It's not a pithy book of sayings and statutes to get us to know how we are to act, although it is that, but primarily it is a story. And it's a story that you must submit to. And it's such a gift. I won't belabor the point. We talked about it all last week. They devoted themselves to learning to the apostles' doctrine. Secondly, they devoted themselves to each other. They devoted themselves to each other. Koinonia, common life. Fellowship, that's the word. You, you may have heard that in the New Testament times they spoke quone Greek, common Greek. It says in verse 32, and they devoted themselves to fellowship. And then later on it says, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to anyone who had need. All their possessions were in common. They took their meals together. They took their lives, friends, were lived together. And and sometimes we hear it said, oh, well, I don't want to go to community group. I don't want to go to prayer. I don't want to go to worship. I don't want to share my story with other people because somebody may laugh at it. 
I just want to come to church and get concert quality music for an hour and a half, listen to somebody who's going to speak who won't put me to sleep, and go home. Listen, if that's you, listen, that's not the church. This is a very important aspect of church. It's public worship, but this is not all church. You can come here week after week, and you can listen to concert-quality music, and you can sing the songs, but that's not Jesus' perspective of church. The community group leaders and I were just talking about this this morning. The church are the people. They're relationships together. And if you're here and you haven't begun to let others into your life or you're not willing for them to come into yours, then you're something, but you're not growing in your relationship with Christ because it is impossible to grow in your relationship with Jesus and not become part of the church. The Bible says that if anyone needed something, that the others in the church, they sold their widgets so that they could give the money from what was their possessions to the person that was in need. They were liberal. Are you? It just means generous. Are you generous? Listen, when, when, when your son comes and sits on your couch in your living room, you don't say to him, get off my couch, that's my couch. Or when he goes into his refri- to your refrigerator, although this is, this is a little questionable. You know, you don't say, get out of my refrigerator, that's my food, <laughs> right? Some of us still do that. But listen, you don't say those things to your son. Why? Because he's family. He's, he's part of your family. You're committed to him. And it's the same way with the church. You don't say to somebody, don't ask me for that. Look out, don't come into my house. Don't, don't take up my schedule. Don't take up my time. No, you don't say, because you're the church. We share our lives together. There's a story of a lady in Florida who, um, who she had lost her husband, and she had two daughters, and they were in junior high at the time, and she, she had written in her will something that nobody found out until as they wouldn't, until she passed away, suddenly in a car accident. And what her will said was, I want my children to go, not to my family, because her family was messed up. I don't want my children to go to my family, but I give my children to this PCA church in Florida. And I trust them to do with my kids whatever they think is best. She gave her children to the authority of the elders and of that church. Can you imagine that? But that's the picture we begin to see of the New Testament. They give themselves to each other. You know the story in Luke 18 where Jesus says, nobody who leaves houses or mothers or brothers or sisters will not in this life and in eternity to come have many more. And we say, well, where are our mothers and sisters and brothers and houses? They're at the Star and Aries apartment. They're at Dan's house. They're at my house. They're at our homes. You are our brothers and sisters. You are family. And God calls us, hear me, as a new humanity to be a church that is broken enough to be able to share our lives with each other. They devoted themselves to fellowship. 
And some people say, well, you know, I love Jesus. Like, I really do. I just heard a guy tell me this last week. I love Jesus. I love the gospel. But I just don't like the church. It's just full of a bunch of hypocrites. (laughs) What do you say to that? I love Young Life. I love Samaritan's Purse. I love Aviation Mission Fellowship. I love these. I just don't love the church. Listen, that's not Jesus' perspective. Those are all wonderful organizations in which we should support them. But Jesus says that he came and he died for his church. In Acts 20, he sets up elders in Ephesus. And he says, I want you to guard the church because I purchased her with my blood. He loves the church. Do you? Peter says, repent and be baptized when they asked him what they should do. He didn't just say repent. He said repent and be baptized. Why? Because baptism was entering into the church. You remember, you know, in, in there's, there, you can see pictures like this one of in ancient Europe, right? You'd have these beautiful, beautiful buildings, these beautiful churches. And in these old, beautiful churches... Right, you can imagine some of these. That they would have these baptisms, right? These baptismal fonts. They were gorgeous. But where were the baptismal fonts? The baptismal fonts were not inside the sanctuary. Where were they? They were in the North X. They were in the lobby. As if to say, you cannot become part of the church until you are baptized into the church. To become part of her. Listen. Membership in the church matters to God. That's why Peter says, repent and be baptized. They were numbered by day, those who were becoming members of Christ's church. There is no such thing in our context, with rare exception, with rare exception as being saved without being in the church. Cyprian one time said, the early church father, you cannot have God as a father if you don't have the church as a mother. Why? Because God knew that in the leading edge of his renewal campaign, he needed us to be together. You know, some of us love the concept of the church. We just don't love any particular church. What would you expect? (laughs) What do you expect from the church? We're sinners. That's the point. I mean, what did you expect? Did you expect the church to be for you? Do you expect the church to be what I get out of it each Sunday? What does it do for me? That's not Jesus' person. They devoted themselves to fellowship together. They were in it together. They were not just walking out and saying, what did I get out of it? Was the sermon interesting? They were saying, how did I do? Did I lean in? Did I worship and glorify God with all of my heart? Did I care for my brothers and sisters? Did I let them teach me? Did I let them see me? Am I growing in my relationship with them? That's the church. Listen, we're in it. So what are our expectations for it? And if you're perfect, you're going to get real frustrated in this church real quick. Because you get frustrated in Acts 2. Sometimes we say, well, if I could just go back to that church, then that would be the perfect church. Okay, well, let's flip over a page. 
one page over, you've got believers who are pretending to give this great financial sacrifice and they lied to God and there are bodies in the lobby. Or a page right after that, you've got the distribution of food and the Greeks, the Greek widows are getting cut out of the distribution of food and they're getting all worked up. Listen, it's not that perfect of a church. You flip over a couple more pages and you get to 1 Corinthians and even with all of our sexual illusions in our culture, you read about a situation where there's sexual immorality that would make every one of us disgusted to hear those details again. Did you expect the church to be for you? What did you expect from the church? What do we expect from it? The Bible consistently describes the church as beautiful. And the Bible consistently describes the church, if I could be so bold, as a whore. Hosea. What's that book about? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Listen, have Eze read Ezekiel 16 sometime. Don't do it as a family because you won't be able to get very far. And look at the language that God uses to describe Jerusalem. The picture of his church and the way that she has idolized everything else but him. It'll make you blush. Martin Luther said that God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, and life to none but the dead. He does not give saintliness to any but sinners, nor wisdom to any but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched, and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. Therefore, no arrogant saint or just or wise man can be material for God. The church is a mess, but Jesus loves her. Do you? Do you love the church? Sometimes people say to me, Blake, I love, your I love you, I love you, but I don't love your family. Rarely does that happen, and if it did, I would say that they're demented because we're a package deal, right? You can't say you love Jesus and not love his body. Do you open up your homes? Do you open up your pocketbooks? Just this week, Lauren and I had to schedule a trip to go up to New Jersey um, for a board meeting for this organization where I worked before coming um, to Oklahoma. And uh, people in our old church caught wind that I was coming up and they emailed us and they said, hey, like, we don't really want you, we want your family. And uh, if you buy two tickets, we'll buy the other two. And so, the check's in the mail. Don't argue with me about it. And so, there it came yesterday. There's a check for, two, for money for two airline tickets for us to take my family. It was a beautiful picture of the church giving of their resources to love each other. Or opening your schedule. Look, the average age of our church, you can just look around, is 36. Which means that we have a whole lot of mamas and daddies with a lot of little babies running around. You've got mamas that are exhausted and worn out after a long week, and you've got dads who are working like dogs trying to feed all the mouths around their table. And some of you are a beautiful picture of the church in that many, many, many of you offer to babysit the children of this church. 
It is an incredible blessing to us that you do that. Thank you. And all the more should we do that for each other because that's what the church does. We enter into life together. We meet each other where our needs are and we support and we encourage each other. You're giving of your time and your schedule in that way and it's beautiful. Thank you. Let's keep doing it together. And maybe the Lord would move one of you to set up a kind of rotation for the young moms to help them think about how to actually give young moms and dads a break to go see a movie in Tulsa once a month. It's a beautiful way for the church to be the church for us and our community. We share our stories. We share our lives together. Listen, when Lauren and I need advice on how to raise our kids, we call you. We call people in our church. We call people that we love. When there's stuff that's going on in my life, like when I, you know, when I found out that I'm losing the hearing in my right ear, it kind of freaked me out, actually. It still does a little bit. And um, I told some, and you're praying for me, thank you. I mean, the city, as much as we hate to use the city, it's an incredible encouragement when you get people who say they're praying for you on it. Thank you. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to each other. And as we devote ourselves to each other, we become the leading edge of God's renewal campaign in Owasso. Not a perfect church. That's not the point. But a church that's constantly recognizing where our areas of unbelief are. And we're consistently getting quicker at repenting and finding that Jesus and him alone is the thing that unifies us together. One of my favorite stories, and I'll move on, is the story of Mother Teresa. Um, have I told you this before? Mother Teresa comes to the U.S. one time, and she's about to leave, and she's at the airport, and the reporters stop her, and they say, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa, you've been to many countries around the world. Tell us, tell us the poorest one you've ever been to. And she said, yes, 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 I've been to many, many countries around the world, but the poorest country I've ever been to is America. And these, um, the media and the guys interviewed her said, well, well, you know, um, America has got this incredible GDP and, and we're certainly not the poorest country. And she says, no, you are. You're the poorest country I've ever seen because you have a poverty of loneliness. And it's an indictment on a church, on any church. Well, you come to church, and it's like you come to a giant football game with hundreds of thousands of people in the stadium, and you cheer for the Sooners or the Cowboys, but then you get into the car, and you all know the feeling, the warm fear of isolation and loneliness sets back in. Listen, we're a country full of individualists, and we're going to get to heaven and say, God, why didn't you give me community? And he's going to look at you and say, I gave you the church. Are we doing that? Many of us are. God's new humanity, it is the leading edge. Listen, the church of Jesus Christ is his love manifest in the world. And the Holy Spirit comes not just to make his church beautiful, not just to give us his love, but to make us lovely as well. Thirdly and lastly, they were devoted not just to learning, not just to each other. They're devoted to worship. It says in the passage that Kay read, and they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added daily the number of those who were being saved. Listen, they love to talk about what God was doing in their lives. They love to talk about how he's moving in the community, what he's doing through places like Aruba. They love to talk about areas of their life where they're seeing their sin and they're repenting more frequently. They love to talk about those kinds of things. They came to worship because they knew that the liturgy of the worship, the rhythm of their worship affected them, changed them over time. They love to be here together. And we saw this even this, the last couple of months. We've had crazy weather in Oklahoma. But even amidst that crazy weather, you guys came to worship. It was awesome. And I don't say that because I wanted you here because I'm a church planner. It was awesome to have my family here to worship together. There were a hundred reasons why we could have stayed in Bartlesville. But the Criders didn't. They came. It was awesome. It's a beautiful picture of being the church. Is worship a priority for you? Is the rhythm of hearing the gospel, tasting and touching the gospel, hearing the gospel preached, is that a priority? It needs to be for God's people. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, that is to the Lord's Supper, to meals together, and to the prayers, to the liturgies of the church, to the worship of the church, to public worship. There is... Um, um, there's a story that John Ortberg tells about a time he went to an African-American church and, uh, and he said the preaching wasn't all that good because he was the preacher and um, the music was okay, not great, but he said this service, which was like 90 degrees, you know, it was hot and he said it lasted, guess how long? Three hours. And he said what was amazing about this service you know, was it the preaching, was it the music, was it the dress of what people had on? What was amazing to me about the service is that when the service time came for the offering, which they brought up front, he said they danced up the aisle to give their offering. And he said they danced as though they were people of incredible means. But he says, but he looked around the church, and it was pretty obvious to him that they weren't people of that significant means. And here's the point. Ortberg says that they danced in giving their resources with a kind of defiant joy, as if to say, cancer will not beat me. My wayward child will not beat me. My confusion about this particular theological doctrine will not beat me. My frustration with these aspects will not beat me. I come to worship with a kind of defiant joy or I'm going to, despite my circumstances, I'm going to come and worship him together because that is being the church. Do you have a kind of defiant joy? When Satan tempts you to despair, you don't need to come to church. Don't come to community group. Don't be part of the church. With a kind of defiant joy, you say, no. Despite my circumstances, I'm coming. Because it's in the church that God grows us in the gospel. That's one of Luke's chief points in the book of Acts. That's why he's extending the book of Acts. He's extending the gospel throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. The Washington Post reported a couple of years ago about 10 Christians. Um, six of them were Americans. They were in um, the northern Afghanistan doing surgeries and teaching people about proper health care. And um, the Taliban 
found out about these people, and um, they slaughtered all of them. All ten of them, you may remember reading this in the Washington Post. They killed all of them for preaching Christianity. They never talked about Jesus. They were doing cataract surgeries. They never opened a Bible. But the Taliban knew that these guys had something that they had no defense for. That is, they were winning the favor of the people out of their utter generosity and kindness. They were not preaching the gospel, but they were. They never shared the story of the gospel, but in a sense, they were. And the Taliban felt like they had no option but to take them out. Listen, do people say that of us? Do they see that the leading edge of Owasso is the church? Or do people just say, you know, gosh, look, those guys are so self-unaware that they disgust me. We are called together to be the church of broken people. And it's a beautiful thing when we do it together. Listen, Lainey, Lainey was able to go to the Olympics because her sister Tracy gave up her life gave up her goal. It felt like death to her. And you and I also have an older brother who gave up his dream so that we might be able to be brought back into fellowship with our Father who loves us. Jesus Christ came and he was the one who performed on our behalf to win for us the gold medal, to give to us so that we are cloaked in his righteousness, not our own. It's his performance, like it was Tracy's, or like it was Tracy's for Laney. It's Jesus' performance for us that unites us together so that we don't try to trump each other. We constantly learn to serve each other because they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to fellowship. Do you love the church? God gives us the church not only because he wants to extend his beauty into this world by his power of renewal, but he gives us Jesus Christ, his love of which is manifested in the church. And the Holy Spirit comes not only to give us that love, but to make us lovely as well. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is a new creation by water and the word. She's a new generation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help those of us who have been so fractured by past church experiences that they are not surprised by how messed up the church is. And yet, Lord, you call us, even though we've had hard experiences with the church, you call us, Lord, into unity together through repentance because you've called us to be your hands and feet in Owasso. And so, Father, would you strengthen us to do that, to have the marks of a healthy church committed to the apostles' teaching, committed, fiercely committed to each other, and committed to worship together. Father, prepare us now as we give. Prepare us now as we come in repentance to your table. 
to bask in the glory of the church made new through you, Jesus, our righteousness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.